Hello everyone. Welcome to this roundup. As we watch technology disrupt nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short, referred to as NGIOA, we also see how it is transforming how we, the humans, do things in a digital global age. One of the fundamental elements of human lives, the way we borrow and repay loans, that is money, is on its way to fundamental transformation. For years, lenders have employed relatively static, tedious, and highly complex business models that lacked focus on consumer interest, experience, preferences, or priorities. But today, lenders find themselves challenged from all sides of innovations by innovators that are not only customer friendly, but also seeking to disrupt the traditional model of lending and its associated businesses. From crowdfunding to peer-to-peer -peer lenders, the internet, e-commerce, and technology has brought transformative opportunities for lending profession and sector. At the center seems to be artificial intelligence-based new software algorithms that price and rate individual and business credit. In addition, paperless, that is digital processing, seems to have eliminated the slow and tedious pushing of papers that was a classic you know, history between retailer, borrower, and lender. Lending industry has reached a point where simple and seamless financing applications offer loan approval and transparent pricing and terms on the very spot. In short, lending is becoming smart. So what does smart lending mean for individuals and entities across NGIOA? To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Edwin Carcel to Risk Roundup. Edwin is the CEO of BitSmart and is based in the United States. Welcome, Edwin. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Hey, welcome. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. Wonderful, Edwin. So how is technology transforming lending industry, Edwin? Uh, it's basically simplifying a lot of the procedures. Um, if you go and buy a house or a car, you typically have to fill out about 20 or 30 different forms for a house and about three to five forms for a car. Just on that fundamental piece, um, our service will allow you to just have one signature on one document and then all the subsequent documents are completely electronic and can be filed with both the state uh, and the taxing authorities without any further human interaction. Oh, that is that is wonderful. It seems that technology is eliminating the burden that was once placed on the customer by making the lending approval process quick and hassle-free. As you were saying, it is they just have to sign one form. And it, so far, historically, it was on based. It was the whole burden was on the consumer. They had to provide all kinds of documents. So this is a fundamental shift. So how is lending today different before internet and technology? Because now we have artificial intelligence, big data, blockchain, and so many more technologies that are bringing so many new kinds of innovations. And it is bringing fundamental transformation. Mm -hmm. Well, if I start with the loan origination component, uh, it's essentially almost all the banks, particularly in the US, and there's an equivalent uh, services around the world. Uh, base their lending on the FICO score. Um, the FICO score is a predictive based on the history of somebody's ability to earn something. Uh, within our system, we also are doing predictive analysis of their future earning 
for example, if you're an MBA graduate and you've recently moved to Jacksonville, uh, Florida, to work for one of the major banks there, uh, you'd typically start on between 80 and 100,000 plus upwards of 50 to 100,000 in bonuses. Within three years, you could easily be earning 150,000 as a base and a significant bonus on top of that. But with an MBA, you probably have two $200,000 worth of um, student loan debt, which is a major drag on your ability to borrow money. But because we're predicting the future, um, if you average that out over a five-year period, we can assess a higher rating or a better rating for an individual and give them a lower rate based on the fact of their future earning, which is very rarely, uh, if ever, taken into account when uh, people are, are applying for loans. That is a very good point. So from what you are saying that he, you gave an example of the MBA degree. So education, it seems that definitely helps in that, you know, futuristic analysis that uh, uh, technology uh, tools are doing right now. Is that uh, accurate? Uh, yes, it is. There's a lot of predictive analysis uh, that you can gather. A lot of it is readily available on the internet. You just need to know where to look. Um, so the ability to be able to make more money based on the education that uh, consumers have, based on the degrees that they have, that is certainly helping. But what about uh, the people who don't have those kind of degrees? How are they being evaluated? Uh, they're still being evaluated on um, their f future projected earnings, um, but it's it's less of an uphill or an upwards tra trajectory for them. Um, so we have to refine the amount of money that they can borrow um, more based on their current position and the stability of their current position. I see. So uh, is, this, is this approach taken by your organization or is it you see across uh, the industry? Uh, the, it's uh, within the peer-to-peer -peer lending industry. I see this approach quite a lot. Um, there's a couple of companies, particularly SoFi, um, and a, a couple of small niche players who are very, very focused on predictive analysis or AI, um, looking at an individual as a whole rather than their historical interaction with the credit companies. Um, and they're getting very refined about what they look at. They'll look at Facebook postings. They'll look at um, a lot of things on LinkedIn, et cetera. And they'll also, if there's some questions or disputes over some of the information, they'll also ask for additional information that can be also proven electronically. For example, if you've got a paycheck, um, you can provide that electronically. Uh, you can now extract all of the information from that, find out where the, which bank they're going to, and then uh, double check that that amount is regularly deposited into their account. Um, so that, in and of itself, all easier and confirms or improves the confirmation. I see, but uh, Edwin, to me, it seems that this is probably a flawed approach. Because you look at the organizations, there are many consulting companies who have started not looking at the degrees at all because they feel that, you know, having the degree or certificate 
uh, is not necessary does not necessarily translate into the performance at work your ability to make money to be uh, how prosperous you will be or how much money you will make how many innovations you will be able to create or innovate that has nothing to do with the degree so if the PL, if the industry is focusing heavily on this uh, you know degrees like you know for you have mba degree you would be given uh, more benefit and you would get uh, lending at a lower rate that probably seems to be uh, fundamentally you know i think the approach is probably misleading because we are in an age where people's ability any individual's ability to innovate to create a business and to be prosperous and be successful has nothing to do with degrees anymore. <laughs> well, I, I would agree. There's there's an inverse relationship in a lot of cases to the quality of the degree uh, or the, the type of degree that somebody has versus their future earning. Um, my degree is from a small university in the United Kingdom, um, and it definitely wasn't a red brick or, or top-line university. Um, however, if you looked at my earnings potential or earnings over my lifetime uh, versus somebody who graduated from Cambridge or, or Oxford, I would say they're probably on a par or slightly in my favor. Um, a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs um, either don't have a degree or have a degree from a place that nobody's ever heard of. Um, but those are actually a lot of times outliers. <clears throat> now, if you look at the earning potential within a company like Google or within um, Ernst Young, etc., uh, those are fairly well predictable. Um, so at that point, if somebody's got a liberal arts degree, goes and works for Ernst and Young, there's a fairly good probability that within two or three years they will be on in excess of a hundred thousand. And that that type of analysis and that type of data is readily available. Now that doesn't address the people who don't have degrees. Um, th those people, uh, if they are, if they've got a reasonable earning that they can show, and they have um, a fairly low debt to income ratio, which if they never went to university is probably highly likely, then they too can qualify for significantly better um, interest rates. Um, it all comes down to the, the risk that the lender is taking. And if the risk that the lender is taking is can be shown to be low, then the rates will correspondingly be low. Yes, yes, now that, that I understand that. Now, how is big data reshaping the lending processes? Because, uh, you know, you see across the industry that this is very heavily used for predictive analysis, that what kind of, uh, you know, risk we the lenders would be facing for any individual or entity who wants to borrow. I think for for somebody who's borrowing against an asset, um, particularly, well, there's two different types of assets. There's assets that will appreciate, like a home, um, or at least hold their value anyway. And then there's cars and uh, industrial plant. That essentially, as soon as you start using it, it automatically loses value. Um, in either case, you can base a lot of the predictive analysis uh, on the actual default rates for the purchase of that type of equipment or an automobile or even a house. Uh, and there's now 50, 60 years worth of um, 
data that's available, which probably only the last 20 years are, are really reliable. So you can do some predictive analysis on, on auto loans, uh, just coming to my, my uh, special, uh, specialist area. Um, even in a high risk loan, auto loan, um, as long as it's not at the highest end, the default rate is approximately 2.4%. Um, and somebody who's in that bracket would be paying somewhere in the region of 15 to 20% for their car loan. So the risk of the default is built into the interest rate. I see, I see. If, now, yes, yes, I, I hear your point on that. Now, traditionally, businesses have relied heavily on credit scores to drive the lending decisions. And... Uh, but as you just suggested, now, you know, there are different data points that are considered like, you know, education degree. Now is, so apart from now, obviously the credit history is not the only factor that is considered. Uh, then education and other factors are also considered. So what other data points are con taken into consideration for taking the decision of uh, lending? Mm -hmm. uh, well, first part portion is taking into account their, their current uh, lending exposure, i.e. how many credit cards they've got, um, how, how heavily they're using them, whether they've got student loans or not, uh, whether they've got a mortgage or not. And actually a mortgage is more often than not a positive um, rather than a negative unless it is so high that there isn't any more room for, for a person to actually spend additional money. Um, so that's the traditional piece of, of the equation, plus the historical, have they paid their bills on time? Uh, what they're taking into account now is the type of employer that they're working for, if it's a large employer that will always pay uh, or pretty much always pay its bills, um, is this a, a company that pays well and also has the ability to move people up to higher levels? And that can start even with places like Walmart. Um, where you can start at $10 per hour and within four or five years, you can be at the effective rate of about 14 to $20 an hour, depending on which area you're working in. So there's a lot of predictive analysis based on information that's readily available. One of the other things, uh, if taking my wife as an example, uh, she has a fixed income that isn't even inflation linked. Um, however, uh, she owns her house outright. So at one level, she's got a depreciating in, um, income based on inflation. However, the fact that she's got an asset that's worth uh, in excess of 200,000 uh, gives, at least from our algorithm's perspective, a feeling that she is a, a fairly stable risk. Um, when, uh, when you look at, a, again, an auto loan, um, what you're looking at is an asset that will immediately depreciate 15% as soon as you drive off the, the um, auto lot. So we need to make sure that that person is, has the capability current, present day to pay for that loan. And the only deciding factor then is what is the interest rate? And the interest rate is, is based on our predict, projection of their ability to pay. And as long as they have a stable work environment and they also have um, additional pointers like um, stability of location, then their interest rate will go down. 
I see, I see. That's very interesting. Now you mentioned that the organization where people are working, that also is taken into consideration. So for someone who is working in Facebook or Google or Microsoft, they they obviously, you know, will have a lower interest rate from what you are telling me. But what about the people who are working in small businesses? Mm -hmm. Is, do, is does that go against uh, them that they are working at small businesses and you know they would have to pay higher rate uh, because they would not uh, have the benefit of the large organization evaluation factor or data point that you know benefits people who work at the large organizations like Google? Uh, the, the, there's a degree of that, um, but it is a marginal degree depending on what type of organization they're working in. Say, say they're working in a small company of 10 or 12 people um, and they're in advertising for example and the vast majority of, of companies in the advertising industry are small so the fact that they're working for a small company is significantly less relevant there it's more of have they just got into this is this their first career out of um, graduating from college or uh, out of school depending on what type of role it is um, is this um, the norm for the industry? Um, so all the, all those types of things can be taken into consideration. The film industry is a classic example. Pretty much every uh, movie is made around building an LLC or some other type of limited liability corporation. And then everybody from the actors all the way down to the uh, griffs and the stage builders and all the rest of it are essentially hired for the duration of their requirement for that film. So if you looked at somebody who is in the film industry, um, producers and the executives on that side, a lot of them have an extremely spotty employment history. However, their pay is fairly high, um, probably two to three times a rate for a comparable skill somewhere else. So that can be built into the equation. I see. Uh, so it, it, there's a lot of variables here. Now, as an entrepreneur, unfortunately, I'm always seen as a high risk. Yes. Um, it's, it's just the nature of the beast. Yes. Uh, the only way to mitigate that is either become outrageously successful and not require credit, which would be the ideal solution. Um, but being pragmatic, um, there is an expectation that somebody who is in, in a startup is of a slightly higher risk and the only mitigating factors are are they doing something that they've done previously for the last three to five years and if they have then that risk is probably a wash if they're going into something completely different then yes that would probably raise the rate yes yes but i think there is a room for improvement here the way uh, predictive analysis is done about uh, borrowers ability to repay the loan or you know that they would not go in default those kind of things i still think that it's in a very nascent stage and there is still a lot of room for improvement how this would be how this should be evaluated and what data points are more accurate Mm -hmm. uh, to you know justify who will be able to pay back or who is not going to pay back but uh, why is it so important for today's lenders to be so customer focused and take the burden away from consumers or borrowers as uh, we discussed briefly before that uh, there was a before internet all the burden of 
proving uh, the ability to pay back was on the consumer. They had mm -hmm. to provide all kinds of documents. Now it is shifting that the organizations or the lenders have to do the groundwork and they have to figure out based on their artificial intelligence models or big data and uh, all the you know social media information that they can get about whether you know that person is going to be uh, someone who will be paying back the loan. So why has that changed? Well, part of it is the um, sophistication of the data gathering. Um, pretty much everything now uh, that you've mentioned uh, from does somebody own a house, is somebody renting, um, do they have a driver's license, um, are they employed, do they have um, income, all of that can be electronically verified very quickly. And f from uh, a lender's perspective, more accurately, because people can very easily lie on a paper application and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of groundwork to prove that. Whereas if somebody says they earn $4,000 a month and you can see that $4,000 a month is going into their bank account by an electronic verification, you can be 100% satisfied that they're telling the, the right information there. Um, and then when it comes to gathering this information, particularly in asset-based lending, there is a tremendous amount of comp competition. Um, in auto lending, you have to make a decision within 30 seconds of a person submitting their information as to, are you going to lend this person um, a loan for that particular vehicle? Uh, now, that loan is going to be based on a smaller set of criteria um, versus somebody who goes to a credit union or goes to a bank. There they have more time to assess the loan, but they do it significantly with a significant larger amount of manual interaction we're somewhere in the middle we still give a response very quickly uh, normally within 30 to 60 seconds however we also give the ability for an individual to say okay but can you take into account this can you take into account that i own a house can you take into account that uh, i've been employed at this employer that's a top line employer those types of things are data points that we can also quickly gather and adjust their rate downwards. I see. I see. Now that those are interesting points. Now, so it seems that the industry is moving towards real-time processing, and there is real-time processing capability available, which is reshaping the lending and borrowing. Because now, as you just mentioned, that uh, within seconds you are able to see whether the amount of salary that the you know. Uh, person is talking about that he's earning that much, you can quickly verify that by looking into their bank accounts. And uh, all that uh, capability is there. So how is this uh, making it easier for the lenders? Because they can so quickly, you know, get all the data points. And also the asset-based, you know, uh, financing that you just talked about, that they you can quickly check whether, you know, that uh, person who is talking about owning a house, does he, does he actually own a house? So all these digit, it seems that all that capability is coming because of the digitization uh, that is happening across nations, but mm. not all the data is available still in digital format, right? Because there is a there is a large effort to digitize everything, all the mm. government records, all the industry records, all the academic records, but still not everything is digitized. 
So how is that taken into consideration as a data point? Because not all information is available digitally. Yeah, um, where where there is time built into the equation, and and if if you're a business, uh, you typically aren't applying for something with an expectation to get a result immediately. There is still a tremendous amount of manual processing uh, because of that very fact that there is a lack of of specific pinpoint information, um, and within the United States, within Canada, within most of Western Europe. Um, a lot of that information um, that at least for a top flight analysis of, of somebody's um, ability to repay alone is readily available. Uh, if you go to China, China at the moment is, build, is still building out the infrastructure. They started credit scoring probably in the last five years. They haven't really got an extensive track record yet, so they're still relying on um, a lot of the predictive analysis of, of future earnings, and they haven't got a foundation nor a history to look at to verify that that's accurate. So in theory, at least, interest rates should be higher over there, but because they're controlled by the government, they're actually on a par or lower. Um, if you go into Latin America, um, surprisingly enough, the banking industry is more sophisticated in a lot of ways uh, than here in the US. Um, you can make instantaneous transfers uh, throughout Latin America. Um, you try and do that in this country, yes, you can do it, but you're paying an absurd premium for doing the same thing that they can do for free. Um, what they don't have is, again, that history of collected data. Um, if you go to Brazil, yeah, that's been around for probably five to 10 years. Uh, if you go to Chile, it's um, maybe five years. And because of the level of imprecision of the data that's being collected and the lack of verification, um, those markets at the moment, people are paying hard than they should do for the relative risk. Um, with our technology and with the convergence of the um, digitization of this information, yes, that will change. And I think it's going to change more rapidly, particularly in places like Latin America, um, then we will see it here in the West because the incentives are just not there here in in most European and US markets. Yes, yes, very true. Now, how many data points are necessary for a lender to make a decision? Because there are, there is, if you look at the internet, I mean, if you try to do traditional identity check or, um, you know, look into the social media or Google searches, there are so many indicators. So mm -hmm. how many indicators are taken into consideration for any lending application to see whether, you know, the, these data points are necessary to make a lending decision? Mm -hmm. um, for us, we take into account approximately 10 different data points. Um, they start with the traditional data points of what is the, the current credit profile, i.e. how much money have they borrowed and how much have they paid back. Um, then we look at utility bills as a pretty good indicator of stability and also a pretty good indicator of priority with within somebody's spending. Uh, we'll look at their savings profile if they've got money saved up in uh, a bank or they've got money invested in, in the stock market. Um, then we'll look at them as an individual and confirm their identity using a government-issued 
um, identity, such as a um, driver's license. Um, now, as it turns out, not every state is as rigorous about checking their driver's licenses. Um, so we, in, in some states, we would want to double check that identity, but in most states, we'll just accept the driver's license. Um, now, that's just basically identifying the person and their credit. Then we start looking at information that we can glean from LinkedIn, how long have they been with their present employer, how long have they been working um, in their chosen industry, um, did they have a, do they have a degree or do, do they not? Um, are they working in an area of the country where it's high or, or high um, concentration of people who default on their loans? Um, and so then we've moved from them as an individual to the actual environment that they're living in. Is there a high risk of uh, a car being stolen, for example? Um, there's a, there was a gang of people, and the reason I mentioned that is there was a gang in San Diego that was buying BMWs and Lexuses and other cars on credit, perfect spotless credit records. They were driving those cars down to Tijuana, driving them to a chop, chop shop, never paid for the car. <laughs> so they got the benefit of taking them, stripping the cars. It took them about two years to figure out this is what was happening. I see, I see. That's very interesting. So you don't take into consideration whether an individual is using Internet Explorer or Firefox or whether an individual uh, on social, on Facebook, how many friends he has. Those, that kind of data is uh, not taken into consideration? It, it is, but it's not a high priority. Um, if somebody has 2,000 people on Facebook, um, one wonders how much time they're spending on Facebook. So there could be an inverse relationship there to the amount of time they're focusing on, on their job. However, if their job is something that they can go to um, and they only need to be present for their job while they're actually there, i.e. it's not a professional job, then what they do on their spare time is less of a, a concern. Um, we're not going to go and, for example, uh, try to analyze whether somebody has posted 15 pictures of them partying. Um, to us, that seems somewhat relevant, irrelevant. Um, we're not in the business of trying to police what people do in their spare time. Um, so yes, there is a little relevance, but it's not a significant amount of relevance. Right, right. But I mean, some uh, some organizations, they take this into consideration because they think that the social bonds predict and encourage repayments. But I don't know how accurate that would be because for someone like me, I I have a Facebook page. I just post about my, you know, uh, risk round of videos and all the information about risk group. I don't connect with anyone on Facebook uh, as a friend and I don't share the private details. That's just not me. I have a LinkedIn account and everywhere I just do the same things. I share about risk group activities. I don't share about my private life. So how are you know lenders going to evaluate me whether I will be able to repay my loan or not looking at you know how many friends I have on Facebook because I don't keep friends on Facebook. So mm -hmm. I think that is very inaccurate way of going but some lenders are doing that. So I'm not sure how accurate that is and how they can uh, evaluate the ability of someone you know repaying their loans but anyway how 
now let's go talk about the algorithms that are have been uh, used have started being used by for landing decisions because it seems borrowers are be also being evaluated by algorithms mm -hmm. for landing decisions so what kind of algorithms are there and what what do the algorithms look at do they look at the what we talked about or the data points on the internet uh, they, they look, there's two facets to these algorithms. There's the those that actually look at the uh, information that's collected on the internet. Um, in my opinion, there isn't yet enough quantitative data that can that makes that a useful indicator of, of a future person's or a future repayment ability. Um, Facebook essentially has been around for a, a little over ten years, I believe. Um, and they only started looking at analyzing that type of data in the last two or three years. So there, this just isn't a historical basis to base anything on as yet. Um, there may be in the future, although I, I, as you were saying, I would argue that that's less relevant. Most of the algorithms that we're using or the primary focus is on saying on the traditional pieces like the um, asset to debt ratio, um, we're also looking at the length of, of employment history, the type of employment that they're involved in, and those are all independently scored. And where we can electronically verify it, we will. Um, for us in, in the auto lending industry, if it can't be electronically verified, then it's significantly less relevant to us. So we don't take it into account for that particular individual. Uh, if somebody is being paid cash every week, there's no way we can verify that, for example. Um, but the the algorithms um, will take into account a broad assessment, but because we sell our, our loans on to third parties, we also have to declare what the profile is of the individual in their terms. So we have our own lending algorithm that determines whether we will originate a loan or not. And then we have a cross comparison to the lending algorithm that our lenders will use. And then we can say match um, loan A to organization B that wants to lend to that type of people. Um, for instance, a, a low risk, um, low interest rate loan versus another one where that lender is willing to lend at a pretty high rate but they're willing to lend to a high-risk uh, borrower, and we would give them the matching of that. So it's actually a two-fold algorithm match, matching to originate and then matching to the lender to make sure that they were willing to take the profile of that risk. I see. No, I understand that. Now, it seems that uh, while the focus has so far been on lending and uh, creating all these data points to analyze, uh, to predict uh, the ability to pay back, now the focus is also shifting on collections. Mm -hmm. It seems that, you know, calling in debt is a problem, you know, it's a developing problem because all the lenders, they have a different model of evaluating risk. They all have different, they all consider different data points. There is not uniform standard uh, and it should be. I mean, uh, it, every organization uh, should have the ability to decide what is important to them in how they evaluate the risk, but in how... There, you know, there is so much variation in how there is evaluation of risk uh, for repaying the loans. It seems that uh, the collection is becoming a big problem. So, mm -hmm. 
how is the industry trying to you know manage this or trying to address this problem well the, the collection process um in western europe and here in in uh, north america is actually pretty well prescribed um in a lot of cases um in the first 30 days you can acknowledge with an individual that they are already in default and that the default terms of the loan apply after 30 days you can become more aggressive um, and our plans are to actually work with a nationwide recovery agency uh, they know all the rules because they they vary by state um, they also know um, a lot of information about the individual so they they will know that that person is employed at this location um, that they go to school here and they bought an automobile from this place all of that information will be readily available and they can use that information um, to uh, obtain recovery of in our case a vehicle um, but the actual recovery process is so well defined that I'm not too worried about that. Um, it's not something that that I, as a lending organization, uh, have a lot of influence over. Um, there's currently three different federal agencies uh, on top of the state-based agencies that clearly define what what you can and cannot do. Um, one example is uh, you can only make one phone call per day to an individual who is in default on any type of loan. The second phone call, if that's made to a person on the same 24-hour period, um, could result in a fine of up to $275,000. Um, and that type of prescription um, means the industry is, is behaving fairly well. Um, it's not something, yes, the, the, the availability of data to um, a collection agency is significantly higher, but the process that they have to go through is so well defined by states um, that it's unlikely to change anytime soon. I see, I see. But I'm sure there is a lot of room for innovation in this area because uh, obviously it is still functioning like before and uh, there is no effectiveness or efficiency in how that debt can be collected so i'm sure the innovators will come up with some you know interesting ideas uh, and innovate uh, to help the industry but, but let, talking about the smart lending that means it's basically big data and uh, identification of all those data points that is available but so, from some estimates there are between uh, from 10000 to 20000 uh, data points that can be considered for taking a decision on whether you know someone should get a loan or not so but from what i'm reading that the industry the players still don't know what each of the data point means and mm -hmm. how to use that effectively so what kind of uh, effort is going on to understand what each of those data points like there thousands and thousands of data points are available so how to get some intelligence from that how to make sense of that data mm -hmm. Um, you, you're right. At the moment, it's it's almost the world west as far as how many data points you can look at, how you can apply them, what the sensitivity is of, of a data point, i.e. how readily can you collect the information, how accurate is the information that you collect. Um, 
with the FICO score, that has a 30 plus year history and was collected by, by one company uh, based in Silicon Valley. Um, they have a very well, very heavily defined and, uh, and well accepted process, but it is only what I would consider 20 to 30% of the total score that people use these days. The other 70%, it's essentially right now up to the individual lender how they use that. Um, there is some standardization on the back end um, to a degree, but even people like Lending Club have fallen foul of this. They've defined lenders as uh, safe and stable as far as their lending is concerned. And then they go and sell that loan to a third party. That third party is determined that they don't meet the criteria after the fact. And Lending Club ultimately, in that case, bought those loans back at face value. So there's a lot of things that just aren't defined uniformly that really, realistically, ultimately will need to be defined. Um, I think there's probably a 10-year lag. Um, traditionally in the banking industry, uh, and I've been in the banking industry over 20 years, um, there's a 10-year lag from when they start messing around and considering new approaches before they even get to the point of sitting at a table and starting to define common terms so that they can all talk the same language. The lending industry seems to be right now getting more and more diversion um, and the data points that people are taking into a cons consideration, I believe for the short term at least, will continue to diverge until somebody finds something that is a very solid um, and provable algorithm or approval approach. Yes. Um, who knows when that will be? Uh, <laughs> it would be nice if it was me, but um, it's something that will eventually happen. It's just not going to happen right now. It will. You're right. It, it, it is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. But And if you look at it, on one side is smart lending, which takes into consideration all these data points and uh, algorithms and all that. And another is smart contracts. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems that the blockchain based smart contracts is probably going to be the solution to so many different problems that the industry lending industry is facing. Uh, do you see that possibility? Uh, absolutely. Um, again, within our niche area, we're planning to use a, a smart contract to define the umbrella lending pro uh, loan i.e. how much money are we giving to borrower A and over what time period and what the expected repayment is. Also, uh, within the smart contract, we'll define what happens if they default on any particular piece of that. On the other side, because we're making these loans up from multiple different lenders, uh, we portion out each loan and have a separate smart contract which says how much money we owe each lender. And that then is triggered so that every time when somebody pays us their monthly payment, our system automatically splits it across the lenders of record at that moment and automatically pays them. So in essence, there's no human interaction throughout this entire process. And the beauty of that is um, a lender, if they choose, could cash out of a portion of their portfolio and sell it on to somebody else. We don't care. 
as long as we have a record of that transfer, we're just interested in on this date when we receive this money, where do we need to send it? And all of that is totally automated behind the scenes. Uh, and the only time that we will ever need to worry about uh, changing any of that um, is if there's uh, a change in the rules as to how we can split uh, auto lending loans. I see. I see. Now, let's talk about peer-to-peer -peer lending, which is uh, probably of interest to you as your organization's effort is towards that. So for our benefit of our global viewers and listeners, can you explain them what is peer-to-peer -peer lending? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, well, peer-to-peer -peer lending uh, at its simplest is uh, essentially one person lending money to another person. Um, in reality, uh, the P on the peer-to-peer -peer side um, is more uh, likely to be an institution, a bank, a hedge fund. Um, it could even be somebody's retirement money. Um, but it's no longer um, a peer as an individual. It's a, a peer as a pool of organizations. Um, on the other side, the 2P piece, those are typically individuals or individual companies. Um, so there isn't really a fluid market uh, in an abstract sense of individuals lending to individuals. It is definitely 80, 90, even 95% um, large corporations that are lending to individuals. I see. So do you see a possibility of the individual to individual lending happening in the near future? Uh, I believe there is. There's a lot. Again, it all comes back to technology. Um, there is a couple of companies out there that are providing the ability for an individual to move their retirement funds into a peer-to-peer -peer lending environment. Um, if you look at the, uh, and again, I only have stats for the U.S., but if you look at the U.S. Um, and look at an individual savings, if you look at their savings in retirement accounts versus their savings in their uh, banking, for example, it's uh, about 20 to 1. 20 times as much money is in retirement accounts as in accounts that you as an individual can access straight away in your local bank. But with that retirement money comes a lot of rules and regulations what these companies are doing is taking the the rules and allowing again my company to access that information without me having to worry about the reporting requirements because they automate all those behind the scenes for me and that allows me as a person with retirement funds to say okay i want to put twenty five thousand dollars into an auto lending environment or into a um a home loan lending environment and that money is then available as if it's any other type of resource but it gives the return rate of return significantly or it gives a higher rate of return to an individual than they would see if they put that money with a bank and then that bank subsequently lends it off yes yes no, i think uh, there needs to be um probably some solutions around that because I would personally, you know, like to see that my retirement uh, money in the account that I'm, you know, investing, I'm only allowed to invest in certain companies or certain, you know, funds. 
I should mm -hmm. be able to lend it to whoever I want to lend it to. If I, if an individual comes with a great idea of innovation, of you know some kind of pattern, some technology idea or new way of doing things, I would be. I should be allowed to invest in something like that so that I can get a better rate of return on that. And I don't have to depend on other companies' performances. I can use my own intelligence, my own ability to evaluate in an organization and be allowed to invest in that. So I hope that these kind of changes comes, you know, in the mm -hmm. coming years. Uh, mm -hmm. That would bring a lot of uh, vitality to this, you know, industry and market. And we can, uh, individuals will have more resources to go to more, you know, places to go to just then, um, you know, the peers at this point who are, like you said, you know, banks and hedge funds and uh, uh, other companies. So maybe that probably should change, but uh, we'll have to see, you know, at, the, at this point, there is nothing available like that. So we'll have to wait and see if that happens. So uh, it seems peer to peer lending has come on very strong in the past few years. Where do you see it going from your assessment? Uh, I think there's going to be more diversification um, as far as what they're lending against. Um, there's a company up in Atlanta that essentially provides funding for people to buy homes, to renovate those homes, and then resell them. Um, and that's, uh, that every time they've done that, they've sold out within hours of, of launching a, a new home conversion. Um, so innovative approaches like that are definitely coming into the market uh, with a vengeance. Um, the main players, Lending Club and Prosper, at the moment seem to have hit a little bit of a, um, a, a trough in their lending. And this is basically being caused because the amount of return on their money has been um, hit partially because of the Lending Club troubles of last year. Um, and people have basically backed away a little bit from this, but the returns that they're getting from their peer-to-peer -peer lending um, are significantly higher than placing it elsewhere. So I think this year, 2017, that will shift back again and more money will come back in into the marketplace. Um, diversification, I think, will, will be the main thing for 2017. Um, I think we'll start to see actual mortgage lenders um, coming into the marketplace for peer-to-peer -peer lending. So instead of lending a whole 250 or 300,000 uh, loan for a home, there'll be four or five companies lending to that specific home, which previously has never happened. Again, all technology enabled. Um, those, those are the main things that I can see, for, particularly for 2017. But that would be very interesting. One lender doesn't have to take all risk. They all five six people uh, lenders can join hands and you know land uh, that would be very interesting. Yeah. It would be great to see you know what uh, outcome it has and how it is uh, accepted or how much interest is there. But it seems peer to peer lending. So as you we have been discussing, it brings borrowers and investors together on the same platform using technology and taking out the middleman, which is the humans here. Uh, but it's still the process is pretty much you know the same. It's just that technology used and not the human is used. But otherwise, you know, pretty much everything remains the same and the digitalization process has helped in uh, speeding up the processing. But what impact do you see on uh, of this, you know, peer-to-peer -peer lending on not only the banking, but the global financial industry and the economic system? Because the humans 
are being taken out the technology is you know coming in and there's so much more technology that will come that mm-hmm. will be at the center of this processing so how do you see this impacting the overall global economic system i think the main thing is more fluidity of movement of money um right now there's a lot of constraints um over, over what you as an individual can do with your money if you place it with an ira company you've got to buy from one of their specific um, um, tracks of, of investment. Um, with the, this diversification and the ability for you to be able to access multiple t- different types of, of vehicle investment vehicles, lending being just another one, um, I think we'll see a lot more individuals get into this type of lending. Um, when you look at cross-border lending um, right now, that's essentially at its infancy. Um, however, in places like China, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, that have very heavy um, controls on the transfer of money out of their country, the big exception to that is if they're investing in um, equity or if they're investing in hard goods by automobiles or even real estate they can then take that money out and they don't have to invest it directly they can invest it through peer-to-peer platforms and that gives them an opportunity to get a higher rate of return um, that they otherwise wouldn't have access to and the U.S. is an insular economy for the most part even though it's the world's largest um currency for trading uh the average american buys domestically um but there's going to be a larger proportion of people who want to invest overseas and a lot of this technology is going to allow cross-country and cross-border investment of all sorts of different types and the assessment of that will be more readily available online Yes, yes, so it seems. Now, what we talked about uh, auto loans that are on the peer-to-peer platform. We all, you briefly talked about the mortgages also that will be coming in the near future. What other kinds of peer-to-peer loans are available at the moment for consumers? Uh, the, the largest market right now for consumers um, is essentially replacement of credit card debt. Um, and that's where Lending Club and uh, Prosper originally targeted their market. Um, the, the other major area, which is by volume um, equal and more likely will take over from that, is companies like SoFi and Common Bond, who are providing uh, loans to replace or repay uh, student loans, reducing the interest rate that they are paying. Um, I've seen a couple of other novel um, solutions. Uh, for instance, SoFi and Common Bond can only lend to people who are resident in this country uh, for a student loan. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of expatriate um, students who come into this country. They don't have access to um, government subsidies or government subsidized loans. Their families and their extended family wants to lend the student the money um, so that they can do this, but there's really no practical way of of managing that. 
um, there is a startup that's actually looking at specifically targeting that market. And that is actually moving back into true peer-to-peer -peer lending. So they would have, say, 10 family members coming together, providing them with the 10, 20, $30,000 per year that they need, depending on which university they go to. Um, and then the expectation is that that person would pay the, those people back and the interest that they're, that's accumulating will go into the next generation. I see, I see. Now, based on your understanding and experience, you have been in this industry business for so uh, almost a couple of decades. How do you think that the lending process can be optimized uh, on the peer-to-peer -peer platform? Because that is of your interest at the moment. Um, the, the main thing is is the gathering and interpretation of the data and going back to one of the things that we mentioned earlier, the standardization of interpretation of these data points. Um, once that happens, then I think a lot more um, individuals will be willing to put their toe in the water and actually lend directly um, through a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. Uh, the, for example, at the moment, uh, going back to the example I talked about in Atlanta, uh, of that company that allows you to basically invest in a builder's ability to refurbish a house and quickly resell it, on average, they're getting a 12% return. Now, in your local bank account, you'll be lucky if you get a 1% return per year. Um, and they're basically that arbitrage, um, the ability for you to get that higher return while doing good for somebody else is going to appeal. Uh, one of the other things that I've seen, particularly with the new generation, is they want to see things that do good for others more so than any other generation. And what that means to the lender is I, as, as a lending organization, want to also participate and give back some of our profits by enabling people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford cars to afford cars. And that, yes, it, it's a business decision in the sense that we're investing money in that for publicity, but it's also a way for us to give back to the community where um, a mother who needs a car to go and uh, take care of her baby's uh, health needs or go shopping, for example, through our process, we could actually manage that and enable that. Um, and I can see that that's going to be coming a, a more regular feature of a lot of the up and coming companies around, that they will put some of their profits back into um, society to do good. Yes, and that would be so welcoming. That is a necessity. We need to, uh, unless everyone has opportunity, we won't be able to bring the security that uh, we need or we all won't be able to advance as a society as we would like to advance. So based on your understanding, what challenges still remains for the lending industry uh, where they would like to do you know, good, where they would like to... Uh, progress, advance using the technology, make it more customer friendly, make it more transparent, uh, make it more easily accessible, uh, affordable, all of that. But it's still, they are not able to go there because there are obstacles in the way. Mm -hmm. well, I think a, a lot of it, um, particularly when it comes to providing 
um, loans to people who are in non-traditional um, spaces, uh, people who have historically uh, always scored higher or sorry lower on their credit scoring, that's going to be a difficult area to tackle immediately. Um, one of the things that uh, one of the people that I've been discussing uh, with when we first started this business several years ago, that he just wanted to lend to anybody who wanted to buy a car. Well, that's a great way for us to go to business very quickly. Um, having said that, once we've got the cash flow and once there's, there's enough support in place, then we can start tackling these higher risk um, aspects of society. And ultimately, I think after a five or 10 year period, we can prove statistically that the risk that is being taken is much lower. It all comes back to big data. If we can prove that somebody, even though every other criteria according to what is normally accepted today would say, no, don't lend. If we can show a record of that particular demographic successfully repaying, then we can adjust our models. I don't think there's ever going to be, here's the algorithm of today and it will be the same in 20 years time, which is basically the way the banking industry has been working for the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, our, our determinant is if, it's, if we're successfully making loans and people are successfully repaying, then we will expand our pool of people that we would accept as buyers and keep refining it and building extra pieces into this. Yes, so it seems that the desire is there to make a difference and uh, steps are being taken one step at a time. It Obviously, nothing is going to be uh, done overnight. This is a process and it will take probably years before the nature of the changes that we want to see would be there in the lending industry. But at least the acknowledgement is there that this is where we should be thinking about and this, should, this is where we need to put our uh, efforts so that we can... Uh, as a society, go forward together hand in hand. Uh, would you like to share with our global viewers and listeners what BitSmart is about and what your efforts are currently? Mm, sure. Uh, BitSmart is a um, also lending marketplace. We're using peer-to-peer -peer technology uh, to be able to lend to a broad spectrum of people. Um, our vision is that anywhere where you go and look for or research for a car, um, you'll see um, lending by BitSmart. Um, once you've entered your information once with us, uh, looked at one specific car, if you go to another car, you'll be able to gather that information about the car and we'll adjust the loan automatically for you. So you'll no longer have to apply individually to individual places. The other thing is, from our standpoint, um, you'll be able to select the car, finance it online, and then pick it up at the dealership. Big plus for you as an individual, you just sign a piece of paper at the dealership that says, I've taken delivery, and that's it. The rest, you don't spend hours and hours uh, navigating through the dealer. Um, from the dealer's standpoint, uh, it's incremental revenue that they're seeing from uh, an online um, source that they wouldn't have come across before, who's already pre-qualified, ready to go. That's an ideal consumer for them. Yeah. Um, 
the so that's that's our niche um, our plans for the future are to include the ability to have a car uh, that is owned by multiple people because um, particularly in Europe and it's starting to happen a little bit in this country um, people are now realizing that they don't need a car ex exclusively for their own use. Uh, and they are willing to pull together and actually buy a car and share it with several other people. The problem with that is at the moment, there's no ready way of assessing and distributing those costs. So one of the people that I'm talking to at this moment is looking at sharing the car with say five different people and then the costs of the maintenance, the cost of the tires, the cost of um, the insurance would be split according to either equal division or by usage or a combination of both. And again, all of that, once we've got the data, we can fairly easily handle. Um, so that's one of the ways that I see our service morphing over the years. Right now, we're just tackling that pain point of you want to buy your car, you don't want to sit in a dealership for hours at a time negotiating the fine point. You get all of that upfront, transparent online. You sign online for the loan and you just go and pick it up. Um, this is to us is a natural extension of that process. Yes, absolutely. No, and it is already, I mean, uh, it saves so much time. It is uh, very efficient, it is uh, very effective, and it uh, cost you know uh, of if you come look at the how many hours you have to sit in the dealership to get a, a uh, your car if you translate that to the amount of you know money that you save by not sitting there that benefits are already there but what is interesting what you are telling is the vision of the co-ownership of the cars that mm -hmm. would be something uh, how is that uh, accepted in europe that approach ownership there is um, a couple of cities in germany um, they have taken a stance that no automobiles will be allowed in the center of that, those cities. Um, and even Paris at one extreme is looking at implementing that from 2020. Um, but what it means is people will drive to the periphery of that city, they'll offload their groceries and other things, and then just take them to their own house. Um, and what they found to encourage people to do this, because they're primarily families, um, is they've made cars available to them um, for whatever their need is. And that, that's one extreme that we've seen. Uh, but particularly in large urban centers, New York being one of them, um, Mumbai um, in India, you're seeing a lot of people who just don't want the hassle and aggravation of owning a car, yet when they need one, they want to have one available. Um, this Right now, there's two approaches. You either do a car rental or you use one of the fractional lending companies that lend a car specifically for you, but you pay a monthly su subscription. To me, it seems that more than the you know individuals sharing the ownership of the car, I think a better idea or but more effective focus would be to have the joint ownership between an employer and an employee because when you how the car is being used if I am employed by an organization the moment I leave the house 
that car is being used for the benefit of the employer mm -hmm. the, when i when uh, people consultants go from one side to another they are basically driving that their own car for the employer's uh, benefit so ideal sense would be that the employer shares the ownership with the uh, employees because the car is being used both for the private use as well as for the professional use mm -hmm. and it would be fair for all the employers to uh, pay for the insurance to pay for the expenses and to have some sort of ownership uh, for that because of that because there are the boundary between you know personal use and professional use of a car is disappearing and uh, if i look at my husband you know he's using the car for his company's use 90% of the time only 10% of the time i see him using for the personal use and in uh, still it is you know the person uh, he as an individual is paying for all the expenses so there are you know many many i mean millions of people like that empl mm -hmm. employees who are using their personal you know car for the benefit of the company and they are not getting reimbursed so that is probably one area that we can look at because that is a fair co-ownership and that would probably be more effective then the personal ownership where probably right now some efforts are going on and where you are thinking about uh, going uh, forward because i don't see if i am an individual i probably won't mind sharing the ownership with my children and my you know family but more than that do i want the co-ownership with friends and you know other people i probably would not so yeah as a family we can have co-ownership but i think that more effort should be probably put that would help consumers mm -hmm. millions of consumers all across nations to have a co-ownership with their employers because they are the cars most every single car that is drives from the employee employees driveway is being used for the employer use and they need to you know pay for that mm -hmm. so probably that is something you can focus <laughs> on <laughs> Well, one of uh, the UK is extremely, um, that is an extremely pre prevalent situation where an employer buys a car. Um, and part of it was because at the time, initially, there was a quirk in the tax code that allowed an employer to buy a car and effectively give a person a two to $3,000 raise in the form of a vehicle. Um, instead of actually giving them two to three thousand more a year to actually run that car um so i i think there's some merit in that um the the, the downside is um if i compare that to the us that was precipitated as i say by changing the tax code i can't see that happening here in the us so it would have to be costed out specifically for the cost benefit in that situation but I still think it's a viable opportunity, definitely. Yes, there is a viable opportunity. Yes, absolutely. So thank you, Edwin, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on uh, smart lending and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on technology-driven transformation of the lending industry and the opportunities and the challenges and uh, that would provide a very good background to them uh, to understand where the lending industry is going and even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to innovate the lending industry using technology and bring the much needed transformation 
to bring industries and its processes in a digital global age based on the discussion we had today. This risk roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Okay, well, I appreciate it. It's my pleasure to uh, assist in any way I can. Wonderful, uh, Edwin. So the world of lending is changing at a rapid pace as financial technology, that is FinTech, startups reshape the lending industry it is important to understand and evaluate its impact on not only the lending industry, but the overall financial industry and the global economic system. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space, and discuss, debate, and define necessary framework structure processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological super convergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, Please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.